Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to a special five-part podcast series sponsored by Stone Turn. A word about Stone Turn. Who do you turn to when you need assistance navigating the emerging risks around the pandemic or help enhancing your compliance program? Who do you turn to for on-demand compliance resources and expertise? Turn to us, Stone Turn. Since 2004, council corporations and government agencies have turned to the global advisory firm Stone Turn when facing their greatest challenges. Make Stone Turn the place you turn for advice on regulatory, risk, and compliance issues, investigations, and business disputes. In this five-part podcast series to celebrate Corporate Compliance and Ethics Week, we will consider each of the six elements required for an effective compliance program as laid out in Stone Turn's Six Elements of an Effective Compliance Program. These six elements are risk assessment, governance and structure, policies, procedures, and controls, training and education, oversight and reporting, and response and enhancements. Over this five-part podcast series, I will be joined by Stephen Martin, Valerie Charles, partners at Stone Turn, and Toby Ralston, Jamin Tyler, Managing Directors at Stone Turn. In this episode, I visit with Valerie Charles on oversight and reporting and response and enhancements. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I'm very pleased to have with me Valerie Charles. Valerie's a partner at Stone Turn. Valerie, first of all, welcome. And thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Thanks for having me, Tom. Valerie, I wanted to visit with you about the element entitled oversight and reporting and maybe start with a question of um, how do you see the relationship between someone who raises their hand and speaks up, someone who's a whistleblower, someone who goes into their uh, manager or supervisor's office and says, hey, I have a concern. Someone who picks up the phone and calls the compliance function and say, I saw this, I don't know what it means, and really uh, down to internal investigations. You know, I think I think the question's especially timely. We're hearing from a lot of clients uh, that numbers are down in terms of uh, general whistleblowing, whether that's you know web-based or whether that's kind of direct contact to uh, the the compliance office. And I think in general, it's important to step back and say, look, in this in this new normal, um, are we still cultivating a speak up culture? Um, and if we're not, how do we how do we do that better? Uh, absent being able to, you know, kind of have the personal effects that we normally have um, in the office, I, I think I think it's doable, um, but it's harder. And I, I really think, regardless of industry, we're seeing those numbers down for a reason. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there are, you know, fewer issues. Um, so it's so it's a concerning trend. But I but I think putting a little attention on it and and looking at the numbers and asking the questions and then thinking about employee engagement um, probably has never been more important than right now. Valerie, moving to perhaps internal investigations, how do you help a client think through what they do when a report comes in? Do they uh, triage it? Do they go to their investigation protocol? And if so, how would they literally think through that process? So when we approach this sort of issue, we think about it systemically. You know, what what sort of volume are you talking about and what's realistic? I mean, one thing that's really important is that there's consistency. And I think making sure that, you know, you have a general framework of how long you're going to allow a, a sort of case that comes in the door 
uh, to be investigated. You know, you have to have a goal line there. Usually we see something like 60 days, 75 days, sometimes 90 days to mark something uh, either substantiated or unsubstantiated. And I think making sure that you're consistently applying uh, your approach. So if, if something is, you know, sometimes it's about a dollar threshold, it's going to go to legal or it's going to, you know, if it's below a very low nominal amount, it's going to stick with HR, you know, routing the investigation process properly, handling things in a timely way and ensuring that there's consistency with the way that the process is handled, um, as well as obviously any disciplinary actions that, that come out of that and how those are communicated. I mean, all of those things are um, sort of part of the part of the soup. Valerie, um, as long as you and I have been in the field of compliance, third parties have been recognized as one of the highest risks. Uh, as we record this in October 2020, it occurs to me they're still one of the highest risks and that perhaps that's made due diligence even more important in the era of coronavirus and COVID-19 and probably going forward. And I was wondering what your thoughts might be on the importance of due diligence in the third party risk management process. Sure. I, look, I think most people are still engaging in you know, due diligence as they onboard new third parties. I think there's a couple areas of risk right now that are really specific to this unusual time. You know, one is sort of a lax approach to certain protocols that you would normally have. So, you know, let's say you are uh, unable to deal with a particular supplier in your typical supply chain because of COVID. And so you've got to go out in this sort of a rushed pace and, and get a replacement partner. And so maybe you skip certain steps that you would normally take. You know, what's what's the process for going back and saying, okay, we know that we didn't have a choice because of business pressure, but to onboard this person more quickly. However, we need to make sure that there's a control put in place to say, okay, in, in three months or six months or some appropriate time period, we go back and we actually, you know, finish the job. We, we, we do the deeper dive. Um, understanding that there are going to be moments right now when certain controls are bypassed. And that's, you know, look, it's okay. It's a hard time. But I think it there have to be measures put in place to make sure that you go back and you you cover your bases. Um, you know, the other place that I'll say uh, third parties have been a little bit difficult is tracking the revetting process. I think that's always hard. And as, and as programs are dealing with budgetary constraints and other issues, you know, spending time going back to your existing universe of third parties and revetting um, is something that I think is is maybe not being done with the uh, you know I don't know with the import that it might otherwise be. And it's and, and you're right. I mean, nothing about the number of uh, enforcement actions that we see involving third parties seems to be you know getting any lower over time. So I, I do think it's an area where we have to continue to be you know, pretty vigilant and pretty aware of uh, making sure that those programs are, you know, as nailed down as they can be. Well, I'd like to change the focus a little bit now to oversight and sp specifically focusing on the board's role in oversight. As a, a chief compliance officer, how can you educate the board on their role in a compliance function, not necessarily teach them uh, what the FCPA is or what conflicts of interest are or the code of conduct, but how do you really educate a board on their role? Because we've had some very large shareholder actions out of Delaware uh, penalizing boards who did not engage in appropriate compliance oversight. You know, absolutely. I really think that 
encouraging the board to really ask questions is an important thing. I mean, I, I think that there's there's no one size fits all here, um, but we do know that appropriate reporting to the board so that they can engage in oversight, not management, but oversight um, is critical. The, there ought to be some sort of separate committee. Maybe that's the audit committee, maybe it's a separate compliance committee, but there should be some folks that are dedicated to board education. And then the board should be thinking, you know, am I asking the right questions? Am I Am I asking for more detail if it's a top line report? I mean, the, the increase in the usage of data actually benefits board oversight because it allows uh, the program to sort of boil things down to a place where somebody who's not in the weeds can still understand it and where appropriate can still drill down and ask for additional detail. If I could maybe pick up on one point you raised, which is really that fine line between oversight and management. Uh, how would you counsel a CCO to counsel a board on that? Well, look, you know, nobody really wants the board, I think, you know, digging around and meddling in, you know, individual investigations. Um, having said that, I do think oversight isn't just sort of a, a buzzword. I mean, oversight means that, that the board has a meaningful understanding of what's going on in the program and how the program is, you know, changing. And, and if there are, you know, problem trends, that should be something that the board can easily spot and ask questions about. Um, again, I mean, I think a good example is, you know, if you have decreasing hotline numbers, you know, the board should be asking, why is that? That doesn't mean that they're coming in and deciding on what to do about it, but they should be asking the question, which then prompts the compliance leadership to say, you know what, we really do need to drive employee engagement as it relates to our speak up culture. I mean, that's a, that's a good example of sort of how oversight and asking the questions and being in the know, but at, at an appropriate uh, sort of vantage point. Valerie, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on the topics that uh, you've talked about in this podcast, where could they go? Well, you can find me at Stone Turn. I mean, I, I will say I, I love this stuff. I'm a, I'm a real nerd when it comes uh, particularly to, to this area. And uh, if anybody wants to reach out to me, feel free to find me on LinkedIn or um, I'm available uh, via email and you can find me on the Stone Turn website. This conference will now be recorded. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I'm joined by Valerie Charles, partner at Stone Turn. And we're going to take up the topic of, or the elements rather, remediation and monitoring. So Valerie, first of all, uh, thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Valerie, uh, I have long time said that your real work with third parties is in their management. And although uh, due diligence is important, and uh, questionnaires, business justifications are important. Uh, what do you see as the key element or, or key way for someone to work with a third party to help manage that relationship going forward after you've signed the contract? You know, there are some obvious places, Tom, where you know you see sneaky people who who know the uh, the vetting process, and so you get your third party in. Um, and then you see something weird happen, like in a couple months later, the contract value quadruples. I mean, there are certain kind of obvious factors that we see happening that we have to watch out for. But I really think in addition, 
you know, great compliance leaders understand the business. And I think having a check-in where the dollar value or the criticality of what the, the third party is doing for you, so in an agency relationship, for example, th there really should be kind of an ongoing uh, understanding of the relationship. And if it changes over time, if the nature of the relationship or the dollar value of the relationship changes over time, the compliance folks should be close enough to the business to know that that's happening. And if that means putting in place a control where certain third parties that are higher risk, uh, you know, where maybe the compliance office checks in every six months, just for a, a stamp of approval from the business to say, no, no, none of these critical factors changed. That That's the kind of ongoing management that I think is, is really a baseline expectation at this point. Um. In the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, the DOJ strongly emphasized not simply oversight, but continuous monitoring and continuous improvement. Now, I recognize this has been, uh, it was originally hallmark number nine and the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, but I think many compliance professionals had really not focused on this as much. So I wanted to ask you, Valerie, how would you help a CCO think through continuous monitoring and then using that information to improve a compliance program literally on a continuous basis? So I think to be able to, to do something continually sort of indicates some use of data. And I mean, again, we know separately from this continual monitoring language, there's also data language um, in the new guidance. But, but I really think thinking about how do you measure what you're doing? How do you know if it's working? Um, looking at those metrics on a regular basis to see what's happening with them. Are they are they improving? Are they declining? If they're declining for some reason, what is the reason? What do you do? You know, collecting data and continually monitoring isn't useful if it doesn't create action for you. And so you have to sort of look at look at what's going on in your program on a regular basis, and then also find a way to react to what's happening in the program and in that data. And so it's something where I think having, having a look at your data, getting your arms around your data, and then having strategies about what you're going to do when X happens, um, how you're going to prioritize things differently if, if the profile of the risks change. That's, that's what it means to continually monitor. That's what it means to continually improve. Valerie, you have worked both in-house and you have worked uh, as in a tech solution uh, provider or a tech provider in the compliance space, you've worked around data analytics, you've worked around AI. What I really wanted to ask you is, um, many compliance practitioners worry that there's too much emphasis on data, but one thing I've always heard you talk about is, it's the human element. It's the human element that interprets it, it's the human element that uses it, it's the human element that, uh, if not engages in the monitoring, engages the, in the improvement. How do you explain to a compliance practitioner really the importance of the human element in uh, the use of data? I do think there's a fair number of folks that think that, you know, AI or automation generally is sort of a threatening concept, that there's there's some sort of undermining that you're going to lose headcount if you engage with automation. And the truth is, in this space in particular, it's it's not a danger. What what you're losing is the administrative burden. You know, the things that can be automated in, in our industry and in compliance 
you know, are things that you don't want to be spending your time doing. You know, there is no substitute for the human judgment here. And I think that anytime you are using data analytics to spot anomalies or to start to see patterns, positive patterns, negative patterns, the, the, again, it's the reaction. It's what, what is the human going to do? Where, where does the, you know, compliance brain come in and then say, okay, now that we see that this is happening, you know, how do we change the application of our resources to make our program stronger, to make our company more protected? I, I think that's, that's the key. And I think if we could start to, to use AI and to use analytics so that we can make smarter decisions, more informed decisions. It doesn't mean we're not making those decisions. It means that we're making those decisions with better ammunition. If I could uh, maybe turn a little to a little bit different focus, uh, root cause analysis has uh, been around for some period of time. And at least uh, in the original evaluation of corporate compliance programs formulated by Wei Chin and released in 2017, under or in the uh, July release of the 2020 FCPA Resource Guide second edition, it elevated the root cause analysis to uh, an official hallmark of effective compliance program. So it's become uh, much more strongly emphasized. And I was wondering, how do you help Valerie, a uh, compliance professional, a CCO, uh, how do you help them use a root cause analysis in remediation and, and I, I would even say in this discussion we've been having about continuous monitoring and continuous improvement. You know, I think if you kind of take a step back and you say, why, why do we engage in root cause analysis? And, and the reason why is so that we don't repeat the same mistakes again and again. So I think the, the real trick here is to say, okay, we had a, we had a hiccup. We're gonna, we're gonna figure out how that happened and why that happened. And frankly, from my point of view, it's even better if you can envision the time before it happened and think what measures could we have had in place that would have prevented this. So if you say, okay, if we had been looking for X, Y, Z, then we would have prevented this problem from ever happening. Then you flip that sort of camera forward facing and now you track X, Y, Z going forward. You make sure that that same type of problem isn't going to happen again by tracking the sort of indications that, that you weren't watching for. And then over time, as you continue to have additional hiccups and you continue to perform different root cause analyses, you collect more and more information about how to prevent uh, these kinds of hiccups. And I think that's where, you know, there is a meaningful moving forward uh, benefit from, from engaging in that kind of analysis. You know, it's, it's not it's not a hallmark because it's you know fun to do or because it's sort of an exercise in uh, seeing how you screwed up. It's really so that you can figure out how to put controls and proactive measures in place to to keep that kind of thing from happening again. Valerie, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any additional information on any of the topics that we've discussed in this podcast. Where could they go? Uh, you can find me if you want on LinkedIn, or you can find me, uh, via email or my phone, um, at the stone turn website. I'd love to, to noodle with anybody who wants to noodle on these topics. Well, Valerie, I really appreciate you taking the time to visit with me and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Hey, thanks, Tom. Have a good one. Hello everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this five-part podcast series on 
the six elements of an effective compliance program. This series has been sponsored by Stone Turn. I link to Stone Turn's website in the show notes, so check them out for more information. This special five-part podcast series has been a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network.